Well, as I was heading out of the garage today to come here, I noticed that my lovely dog, Cash, had ripped into the bottom of the trash can and tore trash all over my driveway. And so if you see that, know that I'm going to be cleaning that up in between this service and our Super Bowl party later here at the church. Um, But sometimes our lives can feel kind of torn up and out of mess, all a mess, all over the driveway. But the great thing about God's word is that it takes the messes of our lives and sets our feet on solid ground. It gives us good truth to transform us and to comfort us and to help us. Let's pray to God that he might use the truths of the word today to do just that in our lives. Pray with me. Father, you're good. Your mercy, it endures forever and ever. Every morning are new mercies. And when our day gets out of order and our feelings are all over the place and things just seem to be crumbling all around, Lord, you are the lamp unto our feet and light to our path. You feed us with something more helpful than even earthly physical food. You give us spiritual food, spiritual truth from your word. And we feel our desperation in that all the more in a fallen world because we recognize over and over again how often hard things can be in life. We pray, Lord, as we open up your word together as a church, that you would move in ways that you just move mightily through the preaching and teaching and reading and discussing of your word. We're thankful for what you've already done this morning in our Sunday school hour and the different classes and Bible studies that were going on, the discussions of the word, the applications of the word. We just pray for more of it, more of it to your glory. And even this evening, the halftime devotion, more of it to your glory, for our good, because we need it. We recognize our need. Help us all, Lord, help us all to lean in in our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us today. We say this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but as we've already kind of shared and mentioned during announcements that some of us went to that Nine Marks conference on the topic of evangelism. How many of you, when you think evangelism, think programmed evangelistic events and meetings and things of that nature? Not a show of hands, just, is that what you think of evangelism, primarily? Do you just assume even that the conference on evangelism that we went to and that the table talk discussion that we'll have on the topic of evangelism next month is all about gaining a crowd so that we can have an evangelistic sermon preached to said crowd. Is that, is that how you see it? I think a lot of us think of evangelism in that way. Now, a sermon can, of course, and should be a means of evangelism. 
Hopefully you're hearing gospel realities from this pulpit regularly, encouraging the Christians, but then also presenting something maybe even new to the non-Christians. It can happen in a pulpit. It can happen at a, at a big meeting. But it's not the primary way we should be thinking about evangelism. I just have to correct us on that. Because how many of us are planning and preparing to preach sermons on a week-to-week basis? I'm not going to also ask a show of hands because I know there's not many of us who do that, right? But how many of us are called to share the good news with the lost? All Christians, every believer in this room. So evangelism is not just events to a crowd and preaching to a crowd only. And then in a similar note, to give some correction here, sometimes we can think of evangelism, if not for the crowd meetings that we invite people to, maybe it's just something that we have to plan out like a task that we do to add it to our day planner. So it's something that you just put in your schedule. Like you have to take your kids to the park or you have to drop them off at school. You got to go to work at a certain time. You go to church and then I guess... We can think of evangelism as something that we should schedule and go and do, just like anything else. Now, we can certainly intentionally plan and schedule times to go somewhere to share our faith, faith to evangelize for sure. That, that's, that's okay, but evangelism is actually something much more intertwined with our lives than what we often think. Parents. You are evangelizing your children every day in your home. That's a mission field. That's evangelism. Every time you do a Bible study, every time you, they come to church and you discuss the sermon or discuss what they're learning at VBS or discuss what they're learning at Pioneer Club, that's evangelism. And, of course, the unscheduled conversations that we might have with our neighbors, our prime opportunities to get to know our neighbors, and to share even with the gospel with them. Your workplace. Oh, your workplace is a wonderful arena to witnessing. I mean, you spend more time at work than anywhere else in your working career vocational day. You spend a ton of time at work. Don't waste it. Why would we waste it? That that should be on on our radar. What an opportunity that God has naturally built in to our lives, whether we work outside of the home, right, and careers, vocations, or those who are working in the home, like, you know, some, some, some mothers, and all mothers, actually, as they share the gospel with their children, there's evangelistic opportunities, parenting, kids, at your jobs, both and, all of the above, you see, you see, you see that it's just, it's intertwined to our lives. When we're at the store, we go over to Dungy or Dollar General or Dollar Tree. We're at the store. We're at the gas station store right there in town. Opportunities, what? To witness, to evangelize. When we go on vacation, vacation is not just a time to check out and relax, though that's a part of vacation. But sometimes the Lord gives opportunities, his natural built into that even vacation is on our our radars. It, It should be. Whenever, wherever we're at, are means and opportunities to witness. Think of this. 
You can be a daily witness if and when you are also going through hard times and trials. You can say, I don't want to, I don't have evangelism on my radar because life stinks right now. I get that. Sometimes that happens. But we can be witnesses in those hard times, not just when everything is sunshine and roses. What an opportunity. Every moment of our lives are opportunities to live out our Christianity before a watching world. And in fact, these bad or hard times I mentioned really display the gospel in even greater ways, amazing ways. This morning here, after quite a few of us spent some time thinking about the topic of evangelism this past week at this very just really edifying conference that Nine Marks put on, I want us to see that evangelism happens in the providential aspects and dealings in our lives. In fact, I want us to see it with one specific scenario, though there are many throughout Scripture, and there are many that you all know, but this one scenario of Paul and Silas in a prison cell of all things. You've heard of friendship evangelism, maybe? or street evangelism, or kind of crusade and crowd evangelism. But here, (laughs) prison evangelism. And I'm not talking about people going, you know, free people going to prisons and, and sharing the gospel, which we see some of that today. No, we're talking about someone who's in prison evangelizing. Why, before we get to our text to see the context, were these two giants of the faith In jail, you might ask. What in the world? Why are they in jail? What did they do? Did they commit some great crime? What's going on? Well, what we see prior to our passage, let me just lay the foundation and the the context here. Paul and Silas committed the crime, I say in quotes, crime of delivering a slave girl who was demon-possessed and was basically enslaved to be used to predict future events for paying customers. And she made her owners a lot of money by her predictions that were prompted by a demon inside her. The girl was a slave to wicked people. And not only was she a slave in that way, but she was also enslaved by a demon who possessed her. She was in a terrible, terrible situation. And Paul and Silas committed the crime of freeing her from it. When it left at their command, not only did it leave, but the business of predicting the future was now gone. How do you think that her owners, rather than being happy for her, were furious? And the crowd that was looking for future insights, they were just angry as well. Because they weren't going to get what they were used to. So in response, they had Paul and Silas severely flogged, whipped, bloodied, beaten, and thrown into prison to be guarded by a single prison guard or jailer, as the text says, and they were bruised and bleeding and battered and chained up into the prison so that there would be no way that they might escape. Sounds like a pretty terrible situation to me. But now let's look at our passage and to see, even in our first point, Paul and Silas and their model for us in there, and number one, hardship evangelism. Let's see it from our passage together. 
About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Paul and Silas were suffering a terrible injustice at the hands of lawless, wicked. They were suffering for doing good, and they were in an extremely uncomfortable living situation, to say the least. Doesn't sound very nice, right? And even feeling the pain of their wounds, fresh wounds, as they were recently flogged here, uncomfortable with the shackles fastened tightly around their ankles and even stripped naked when they were beaten and now in prison that was certainly not a climate-controlled prison. Just added, these elements just added all the more to the great intense suffering in their trial. It's a bad, bad situation that they're in. But what did they do? Did they sulk? Did they complain? Did they yell out to God in anger? Did they curse the jailer and speak harshly to the other prisoners? Not at all. We just saw it. Rather, they were up late into the night after a terribly excruciating, painful, and challenging day To say the least, they were up late singing, praying, and worshiping God in the midst of their huge trial. Their unjust suffering, instead of getting bitter and angry, were worshiping. Even though they were in probably one of the bigger trials that they faced, they're worshiping God. What an amazing witness that is, right? What a testimony to those who saw it. As the guard and the other prison mates were there as audience in this wonderful impromptu worship service. Whoa. And notice, they didn't plan this witnessing event and opportunity, did they? They didn't schedule it on their calendars. They didn't call a special evangelistic meeting for all to gather so that they can get thrown into prison here. But through this unplanned situation that they could have never predicted, they were obviously and certainly prepared for it, right? By the way that they responded to it, you can tell. Their hearts were set on worshiping and glorifying God always, including really hard times. Well before they ended up in this trial, this is where their hearts were at. And it was displayed through the trial. So they worshiped God through and even during their trial. Not after, not yet kind of before, but, but actually during it. And it spoke volumes to those who were around them. Think of the other prisoners who were in the jail cell with them likely in jail for their own sinful doings and actions, right? And here are these two guys singing praise and worship songs. What are they doing? And to the guard who was kind of, well, 
He, was, he knew what happened. He knew the circumstances. He knew why they were there and they're arrested. He knew the unjust circumstances even. It had to make a deep impact on that guard and all those people who were around there. What a display. And even though there didn't appear to be any conversions during that impromptu worship service at the time that we, that we might know of, the people were watching how Paul and Silas worshiped through trials. You see? What kind of witness are you when things are going really, really, really easy and well? Let alone when you were going through a trial. Even a minor trial. Are you getting all angry on the road and yelling at people, not driving to your standards? Or letting your server at the restaurant who kind of put you through the trial, trial of not getting your drink filled on time to then let them have it out of anger and your sense of justice. Oh, the food took too long. Oh, the drink wasn't refilled. How dare you be busy? I've never been busy in my life. What kind of a witness are you through trials? Those are kind of trivial things, but even those light things, what does it display? And, and the bigger things, what do you, what, what, what spills out of you during those moments? What is your hardship evangelism record? As you think back here, maybe you've not handled the pressures in life very well in front of your kids. I've been there. Or in front of other people who might have the pleasure of crossing you on a bad day. Here's the thing. I know all of us have lots of reasons to feel guilty right now <laughs> for how we've failed in these hardship evangelistic opportunities over the years, if we're honest. But the good news here is that we can always repent of past failures, even if it was just last week or maybe even this morning. And we can resolve and prioritize and realize that our witness is magnified either positively or negatively in times of trials. And we could realize that only by the grace of God, of course, can we be helped with our witness through trials. That's a supernatural working. But I just want you to think here what kind of impact you can have going forward as godly Christians responding through trials to make to unbelievers in your life. Just think of the possibilities. Dream of the possibilities. Look, if you mess up, and I know we all have, and totally blow it, and I know we all have, there's still great hardship evangelistic opportunities ahead, even when you mess up. What do I mean by that? Your repentance to them, whether it's your kids when you're short and sin in a stressful time and get angry, or your coworkers, or your neighbor, or fellow church members, your humbling repentance and, and, and humbling yourself to apologize can make a huge impact as well. As you say, Look, I totally blew it the other day. I didn't act much like a Christian. But the Lord has gotten me through and gotten through to me. And I wanted to ask your forgiveness for the way I acted yesterday or last week or last month or last year. Either way, no matter how bad you've failed in the past, 
there is always right now and into the future to prepare for as well. Think of the many different ways and responses that we can trust the Lord through trials, even today, this week, and the evangelistic impact we can have on those around us. And let's just start now with it on our radar. That's one of the take-homes from this passage this morning that I hope will bless many around you. This leads us to our second point as we see an example of Paul and Silas's, and number two, kindness, evangelism. Look with me now in the next verses here in our passage at verses 27 to 31. What happened next? When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. It must be noted here up front that the earthquake that released the prisoners and opened the prison doors was nothing other than the miraculous work of God. Because though earthquakes can happen, we know about earthquakes happening. Earthquakes that open every prison door and unlock chains of the prisoners is no natural fluke or phenomenon, right? This was a miracle of God. It's incredible what happened that day. We also see it was a miracle because none of the other actually guilty prisoners took off when they had a chance. Could you imagine that? Did you notice that when we read it? Think about it. If you have a guilty prisoner locked up and they have a free pass to leave, only a miracle from God would compel them to stay, right? Think of all the movies that have scenes where not only the main characters are broken out, but then what happens, the other prisoners scatter and scram and run out when they get their chance with those main characters in the movie. But these prisoners stayed because God miraculously kept them there. Or maybe they wanted, which this is also God's working, to stick around because they knew that this was a miracle from Paul and Silas's amazing God. They were just kind of amazed by it. I mean, you can see Paul and Silas sticking around in this situation, but the others? Wow, what would cause them to stay? They were just awestruck as anyone would be if they had just witnessed two beaten and bloodied new prisoners all of a sudden not only sing songs and pray out to their God in joy, but then to have that same God shudder the ground and loose the bonds and open the prison doors. This was a demonstration, do you see? And the prisoners were likely in bewilderness and fear in what they witnessed that night. They might have been thinking to themselves, well, I'd love to leave here and be free. But if their God was able to do that mirac miraculous thing in an instant, 
What might he do if we flee? They were dumbfounded. Maybe they were likely afraid. Wouldn't you be? And the jailer knew as he awoke to this catastrophe of an unsecured prison for him. He knew that his life was over. He would never outlive the failure of his duty to keep watch. And to him, it was better to die than to have to face the consequences of life after the prisoners all went free under his watch. He knew what a grave error that it was to lose the prisoners during his shift. It would be a failure of disastrous proportions that he thought had already happened. And he just didn't want to have to face these severe consequences of what was ahead, losing all those prisoners. And they would be severe, maybe even fatal consequences. This, this guard was in a bad place. But Paul and Silas, in their kindness, did not seek the first opportunity to take off like you'd see in the movies and quite miraculously neither, neither did these other prison mates as God halted or thwarted the escape and the circumstances kept them there gripped either way this was an amazing scene right an amazing scene the prison guard heard Paul and Silas praying and singing, and the others heard it too. They experienced God in this moment. And they also experienced kindness from Paul and Silas, caring for the jailer's life and well-being, even over their own freedom. Though they were being held by him, this jailer in prison, unjustly, it was wrong. They did not deserve to be in that prison. It was awful that they were there. But they showed this man kindness, mercy, and grace and evangelized him in an extraordinary way. So I don't want us to underestimate either how our witness during trial impacts others or how our kind and unearned gracious acts of mercy and grace and love to undeserved sinners might also impact others around us as well. Those are both really, really important. Look, you were a guilty sinner, undeserving of God's grace and mercy prior to your conversion. Me too. I was guilty on my way to hell. And what happened to you? What happened to us? God was gracious to pour his mercy and love and grace on you while you were still a sinner. He was pleased to save you, not because you were good enough, but in your badness and undeserved sinfulness, he rescued you and transformed your life, my life, our lives if we're Christians. So, so shouldn't the impact of our conversion change the way we respond to those who treat us unjustly and sinfully? Shouldn't it? Shouldn't it motivate you and give you the heart to do to those who persecute you and who are your enemies, as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, something other returning evil for evil, but even returning evil for good, like we see here in this passage. And don't you see how God's undeserved grace fully transforms your life to begin with? 
None of us are here if it isn't for the grace of God if we're Christians. That's why we're here. It was undeserved. That's why it so amazed you. That's why the amazing grace that we just sung about is so amazing. We don't sing. This is unexpected grace. Now, we would never sing something like that. Or this is exactly what I deserved or whatever. You don't sing that. It's amazing unmerited grace for people who didn't deserve it. And the grace that saved a wretch like me and you and Paul and Silas, it's grace that kept them in that cell caring about the guard over themselves and over their own freedom. That instructs us, doesn't it? That's a witness to us as believers. It's an example. And would you believe it, church? This man responded, the, the guard, after witnessing and response to trials and their kindness, and he immediately began asking even how he might be saved by this God who had saved them so evidently. They told him, notice here, being kind was not enough to save this sinner. Being kind alone and doing good deeds does not convert unbelievers. The kindness is good, don't get me wrong, but it's kind of an intro to gain the ear of unbelieving friends and family in order to what? Share the good news with them. The news is needed, and that's just what they did. If you're here with us today or watching online and you do not know the answer to this jailer's question, you really should be asking what the jailer asked. What does he ask? What must I do to be saved? What? Tell me, tell me, please, what? There's a demonstration here. I see that God exists. What do I do? How do I get saved? How are my sins forgiven? I think you should be asking that. Why? Because I think you need it more than anything, whether you know it or not. What's the answer that they gave? What answer also, if you're Christians here, should you be giving to your unbelieving family members and friends? Let's see it again in Acts chapter 16 and verses 30 through 31. It says, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The best question that ever was asked. And the most important answer that anybody's ever given is in verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. They called them to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And you might ask, saved from what? Saved from who? Sa what? What is this? Saved by the Savior of sinners. Jesus took on flesh and lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death for you on the cross because you're a sinner guilty that should be judged like that. And if it wasn't for Jesus being judged, you'd be judged eternally in hell. That's why it's such amazing grace because what we're saved from is our own sin, ourselves, the, the, the sinful things that we all know that we, we did. But what Jesus did was he went to the cross in our place, condemned, he stood, condemned, he hung for undeserving sinners like you and me. And he died. He suffered. He died. He really died. Died. But then three days later, he miraculously rose from the grave 
so that Paul and Silas and me and you and this jailer might be converted one day when they put their faith and trust in this work of Christ on their behalf and they're saved. Miraculously, the jailer was converted that day, as you see. Oh, what an amazing conversion story of this jailer. This really was prison evangelism. And this also moves us to our last and final point to see what happened next in point number three. We've seen hardship evangelism, kindness evangelism, and now we get to point number three, contagious evangelism. Look with me at verses 32 through 34. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The very powerful thing about genuine conversion is the far-reaching impact that salvation has on not just the person who gets saved, but then on all those around them who happen to know this newly saved Christian. Or it doesn't have to be newly, just happens to know this Christian. We see here in this account this once godless jailer inviting Paul and Silas to his home for a teaching session, of all things, where they could teach and preach the word of God in the jailer's house to the rest of the jailer's family. Talk about a Bible study. Talk about a table talk, right? And consider this. The jailer would have never invited these Christians into his home had it not been for his conversion that day. He didn't get saved. Which means the jailer and his family don't get saved if Paul and Silas don't suffer through this terrible and unjust trial. Wow. Wow. God is in control even of really bad situations, sovereign, like we've seen and we looked at with the kids last night and study. Joseph as example in Genesis, when all the bad things went wrong at the end of Genesis, what did Joseph say after all the bad things his brothers and others did to him? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. I think we see that here in this jail cell, don't we? Now, after the jailer gets saved, he's bringing the gospel teaching into his very home. And the rest of his family are now getting an opportunity to hear the very same powerful gospel message that just saved their dad. They get to hear it for the first time. Just saved their husband or their cousin or their grandfather or whatever relation this newly converted jailer had with the rest of his household. They get to hear from an apostle and from, I mean, he, they get to hear from them. Gospel realities. Oh, what a glorious thing. Do you see, conversion gives an appetite for the word of God that wasn't pre 
previously there prior to conversion. It was gone. It's just boring, church, Bible, preaching. Who really cares about that stuff prior to your conversion? I'd rather do other things than, than hear the word. But when someone gets converted, all of a sudden this becomes alive to them and they are moved by it and they love the word and they're transformed by the word and not only do they want more of it, they want everybody around them to get some of it and more of it and more of it and more of it. This is why I've been recently pointing out the evidence of believers actually hungering and to hear the preaching and teaching and come to Sunday school and, and su Sunday morning worship to hear the preaching of the word and, and other different times to hear the... Why? The, that's, that's what just Christians... That, that's where Christians... The Christians love that kind of stuff. That's why I've been encouraging all of us to benefit from preaching and teaching in our church because unbelievers do not benefit. And prior to this jailer's conversion and new appetite for truth. He wanted nothing to do with teaching and preaching of God's word, did he? Nothing. He wanted nothing. And his family never came in contact with it either because dad didn't lead that kind of thing in his house before. He didn't. He was an unbeliever. He was teaching him other worldviews, other principles, other things. He was modeling different things. He wasn't a Christian. But after he gets saved, this whole family gets access to in contact with biblical truth because when Christian when a Christian is born again and saved, when a man or woman gets saved, they can't help but joyly bring, joyfully bringing the gospel to those they love, starting with their very homes. And that's what we see here. Dads, moms, if you are Christians, you know what this is like. You know. You know what it's like. And I know that you know and love to get your kids or spouse in contact with good Bible teaching whether your kids are young or old, you want that, you pray for that, you model that, because you love good Bible teaching yourselves, and that's a contagious thing that rubs off on others in your home, in your family, in your workplace, in your friendships, and even your church. It just does, it just rubs off. That's, if it's, that's true of you, it's gonna make an impact, it's gonna be contagious of others. We talk a lot about contagious things, at least recently with the pandemic, everyone's afraid, wearing masks, and was worried about the contagion. This is kind of the flip side of that. Like, that was a bad contagion. We wanted to, you know, avoid getting sick. In this sense, we want to, we don't want to avoid, but we want to, we want to let other people get infected with the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ because they're near us. We want to be contagious for good things. We want to give it to them. Would you give it to them, church? And what do we see here in this passage? The jailer gets saved and his influence on his home is also instrumental here for the rest of his family of getting saved as well. They were all baptized together as God saved the whole household with the gospel that wonderful day. Oh, how wonderful that is. Now, it doesn't always work out like that, does it? I, I know that. I get that it doesn't always work out like that in our homes. After conversion, not everybody wants what we're giving, and not as everybody's excited about what we're excited about. Sometimes unbelievers stay hardened and unsaved. And I'm sorry for that. But they're in contact now and hearing the gospel and seeing transformation that before they had not had prior to your conversion if you are a Christian. And so I don't want you to lose heart 
if that's you and in your situation because it's never too late this side of heaven to keep being the witness that you are and you never know how that witness might transform your home and those you love most. There's still time left. But back to this passage again. Some people try to use this passage as a justification for baptizing infants, for instance, because, of course, there were infants in homes and households. If a household is all baptized, then they would presume that there were infants in that household. And it's just kind of assumed that there were infants in the jailer's house. But the passage, what does it say? It says that both he and his family rejoiced, which I think clearly means that his whole family believed, young or old, certainly, but at least old enough to rejoice in the gospel that just saved their dad and also saved them as well. See? Now, as we saw before, Paul and Silas didn't plan to be in jail that night. (laughs) Or to be at the jailer's home later, giving a small group, household, personalized Bible study, did they? They didn't plan that, but they were prepared for it, right? And they sought to glorify God above all else, wherever and whenever they could. I, I want that for you too, church. Are you prepared to evangelize and witness, even maybe today at our Super Bowl fellowship together? Are you prepared to be a witness? I've got little kids coming to that. We should be acting Christianly and lovingly and have a joy of the gospel. I've got kids who could hear that witness. We've got people coming that, even if they are believers, could they be encouraged by gospel presence and realities? Are you ready always to live this out because it just comes from you wherever you're at, whatever you do? This miraculous story, I hope, informs our evangelism here at First Baptist Church of Gallatin. Are you ready to give an answer and to preach the gospel whenever and wherever you're at, whenever and wherever you can? I mentioned that some of us went to that evangelism conference. We talked about it, her testimony earlier. Um, And I also mentioned that we're gonna make a change here and in in the spring, consider this around a table, good discussion, engaging, good reading, good truth, and Maybe if you want to be more encouraged in evangelism and in how to evangelize and why and where, and if you want to have other brothers and sisters pray for those you're witnessing to as you pray for them and those that they're witnessing to, and if you also want to have kind of a team, this is part of being a church, whether you come to Table Talks or not, there's a witness and a team of believers here who love the Lord and love the gospel wouldn't it be great if more and more we were working together as Christians at First Baptist Church to make an impact and pray for and even reach out ourselves to the people that we all know together? Even if one of us doesn't know, maybe somebody else might. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be considering ways that we could share the gospel and make impact here in Gallatin, spiritual, amazing, transformational, eternal impact for people who are on their way to judgment that might be even through your influence who might hear the gospel news and might repent and be saved 
wouldn't that be wonderful to consider more of? I want us to be thinking about that. Because the good news gospel message needs, it needs to be just brimming over in our hearts. And the more that we talk about it and think about it and love it and hear it preached and hear it discussed in Sunday school, the more that is brimming over in our families, in our workplaces, spilling for joy in the good news all over at the sporting event with our kids and our friends and our neighbors and extended family members and our schoolmates. Everyone we come in contact with, what's coming out? What are you excited about? What do you share? We need to have this on our radar. If we want to make gospel impact in Gallatin, whenever he wants, are you ready to give an answer and a witness? Wherever you go, not just during scheduled events, not just for the preacher to do, but you too. Oh, let's have that on our radar. Let's be thinking about the lost and the found like we thought about last week in Luke 15. Let's have it on our radar. Let's prepare our hearts to be overflowing with love of the gospel so that our hope and joy can become infectious and contagious and our witness and our influence could go out to everyone around us naturally day by day no matter what we're doing because it's on our radar and we're being witnesses for the Lord, for the gospel. So that God can use us to do great work in evangelizing those around us with the greatest news of the gospel, the greatest news we have. News that everyone that you know and everyone that you meet desperately needs as well. Let's pray to God for help to that end, church. Father, you are so kind and glorious and good to us. Father, you're patient with sinners like us. You're patient when we sin, even and especially after our conversion. After we know your word, we sin. We have the wrong priorities, the wrong heart. Lord, thank you for being patient with us. Would you point our hearts aright, cause us to repent to you and turn in a different direction, and would you help us to be salt and light in this fallen world, gospel farmers in our town and world. Would you help us to, oh Lord, would you help us to make an impact here in Gallatin for your glory and for the good of everybody around us. We say this in Christ's name, amen.